Hello everyone, I hope that you're all doing well. Welcome back again to Creepscast, the most spine-tingling and bone-chilling podcast offering scary stories from the internet. I'm your host, Mr. Creeps, and in this week's episode, we'll be sharing some terrifying tales that will keep you up at night. Let us explore the supernatural and delve into the unknown. Shall we begin? As we drift further into Mr. Creeps' mind... Stay out of Crater Lake National Park. Something evil lurks below. Written by J.L. Goodwin, 1990. I'm honestly not sure where to even begin with this. It's been well almost a year to the day now and I still can't fully understand or comprehend what happened that day. Neither have I been able to fully get over it. I've floated from one psychologist and psychiatrist to another, all which tell me that what I experienced couldn't possibly have occurred. And yet, as much as they try to make my mind believe that, with both words and medication, as much as I try and make my mind believe that it wasn't real, I know deep inside myself that it was. So I'm choosing to post my account of this here, both as an admittedly rather pathetic attempt to release some of the guilt and horror that I've carried with me since that day, and more importantly, as a warning to anyone who will listen. You see, I used to love scuba diving. I became certified when I was 16 years old, and I've dove both in freshwater and saltwater ever since. I've met and become friends with many great and talented people because of it, and Tyler was one of them. A daredevil at heart and always up for an adventure. I took him under my wing as he was less experienced than I was and a few years younger than me. We eventually became close enough that we called each other brothers. And though we lived in different states, we always met up at least once a year to go on a scuba diving trip. That was up until the pandemic hit a few years ago. When it hit, due to the quarantines and difficulty to travel that it made, we rolled off our annual meetups for 2020 and 2021. We kept in touch, but it just didn't feel the same. And then one afternoon in April of 2022, I received a phone call from him. All the usual cheerfulness and bravado seemed to have been sucked out of his voice. He told me that his work had chosen to lay him off as a way to cut back spending costs due to the strain his business had been put under, and he had been forced to go on food stamps and cash assistance as a result of it. To make matters worse, Veronica, his long-term girlfriend of almost seven years, had decided at the same time to break off her relationship with him. Let me tell you, that woman truly did complete him and losing her on top of the stress from losing his job and inability to find a new one quickly had quite literally deflated him. I felt helpless, unable to do anything to cheer him up, standing in my kitchen and holding my phone, when an idea that I had been floating around in my head sprang to the surface. Hey Ty, I asked, trying to fill my voice with as much excitement and mystery as I could. I thought of something that we can do that might make you feel better. What? he asked, his voice inflectionless and hollow like that of a robot. 
Well, I was thinking, I have a few days off coming up in the next few days from my remote work. What about just packing up, having me come drive and get you and we go take a scuba diving trip? I heard a slight stir on the other end of the line, but his voice remained the same. I mean, I guess so, but where could we go? So many places are off limits due to well. I mean, have you taken a look at the news? A slight smile crept across my face as I prepared to spring my idea on him. And the place I'm thinking of is one where there won't be as many people right now because of the season. My smile grew wider. What's one of the places you've wanted us to dive together the most, but we've never been able to? A pause. I mean, there's plenty of places. Lake Superior, the Blue Hole, and the Great Barrier Reef. I cut him off. No, I'm talking about someplace much closer to both of us. I dropped my voice low. I'm talking about Crater Lake. There was the longest pause of the call yet, and then he spoke, his voice now filled with something that I had been hoping for. Curiosity and a bit of excitement. Crater Lake, man? He asked. That is one place you and I have had on our bucket list for years. A hint of doubt crept into his voice. But I mean, how? You know as well as I do that scuba diving isn't allowed there. If we get caught, I cut him off again. Don't worry about that, bro. I've been doing some scouting of the area, and there aren't that many park rangers around there, as there would be in the summer or the fall. If we go at a certain time, we'll have a few hour window to check out what we can, grab some quality pictures and video. Another second of silence, and then, why not? I've got nothing else to lose and this might help get my mind off the world of crap surrounding me. Yeah, let's do it, man. A grin split my face as I heard the first hint of his old self creeping back in. We spoke for a few minutes longer, fine-tuning the details, and then we hung up to both to get some sleep. As I walked to my bedroom, I glanced at a framed picture of the lake that hung on my wall. I couldn't help but grin as my gaze lingered for a moment more, looking for the edges of the water to Wizard Island. I climbed into bed and drifted off into sound sleep. That night was honestly the last decent night of sleep that I ever got. The next morning I packed up all the gear that we would need into the back of my battered Ford Probe and then made the many hour long drive from Northern California to Salt Lake City. When he answered the door, he was clearly beyond excited. He almost seemed like a kid on Christmas morning, ready to open his presents. It was infectious as we left back west. I couldn't help but revel in the same feeling of excitement and a bit of risk and danger that we were about to undertake. After a few Phillips combined with many snack and restroom breaks, we passed into Oregon stopping a final time in Klamath Falls to spend the night before entering Crater Lake National Park the next day. We told the ranger at the entrance that we were merely heading in to do some snowshoeing around the lake, showing him the snowshoes that we had bought in town as a front. 
After a moment of taking down our names, he smiled. Just be careful, boys, he said. We've had some recent snowfall and some areas are tricky going. We thanked him and then drove up into the parking lot, getting out and retrieving our packs, attempting to hide the obvious yellow glow of our scuba tanks under them. After a few minute hike, we were rewarded with an amazing view of the place that we had come for. For those of you who have never seen Crater Lake, it used to be an active volcano called Mount Mazama. When the volcano had collapsed about 7,000 years ago, it formed what is known as a caldera. The view is amazing. You can look from the top ridge and see the rim of the dormant volcano wrapping around and the forested sides leading down to the water's edge. On the west side of the lake lay Wizard Island, having pushed out of the water from a secondary eruption. You can also see Merriam Cone, a small spigot of land rising up. Tyler and I shared a grin and a high five before carefully making our way down to the shore of the lake. We looked around for a few minutes, catching a glimpse of some snowshoers disappearing into the tree line before hiding our packs behind a rather large group of rocks and stripping off our clothes, revealing the dry suits that we had on underneath them. Helping each other put on our tanks, vests, and weight belts, we made our final checks of our gear before pulling the hoods up over our heads to protect them from the cold water. I glanced at Ty as I picked up my flippers. You ready for this man? I asked. He gave me a dopey grin, his trademark sign that he was beyond stoked. Does a bear crap in the woods? He asked, earning a shared laugh between both of us. I picked up both cameras and handed one to him. Then let's do this while we still can, I proclaimed slipping on the flippers and turning to walk backwards into the water. Even with the dry suit on, the water temperature still sent a small shockwave through my body. As soon as the water had reached my waist, I pushed off to get myself into deeper water. A moment later, Ty joined me. Staying close to each other, we dropped below the surface, marveling at the view around us. The waters of Crater Lake are extremely clear and very blue, giving a large amount of visibility. It feels so surreal, to say the least. Flashing each other the OK sign, we pushed out towards the shoreline of Wizard Island, snapping photos and taking everything in. There had been a few other people to scuba dive here over the years, with the National Park Service approval, of course but recreational diving was barred too, according to the reasoning that was given, not wanting to bring any invasive species or creatures into the lake or mess up the ecosystem in any way. As we followed the rocky bottom next to the island, I felt at peace. The only sound that could be heard was the streaming of bubbles each of us made as we breathed in and out. I checked my air gauge quickly, noting that we had about two hours of air remaining. Plenty of time to enjoy everything, I thought to myself. The thought was interrupted by a poke in my shoulder. I glanced and saw Ty point out ahead of us. After a moment, I saw what he had spotted. Swimming just ahead of us was a large school of kokanee salmon, 
one of the two species of fish that the lake had been stocked with. Their large, bright red bodies stood out clearly in the clear water and made for an amazing shot. I brought the camera up to my mask and snapped off a few photos and then noticed Ty motioning to me. He began heading out towards the salmon and after a hesitant moment, I followed. As I followed him, I spared a glance downward and felt almost a sense of vertigo overtake me even underwater. Not far off the shore of the island, the bottom simply drops away into nothingness. The bottom of the lake is over a thousand feet deep, making it the deepest lake in the United States and one of the deepest in North America. It was so deep that submersibles hadn't traversed the lake bottom before. I stared down, feeling an almost unwilling sense of unease creep over me as I noted that. For all the water's clarity, it was so deep that you couldn't see the bottom. I shook my head. Get a grip, Marcus. This is a landlocked lake, not the Pacific Ocean. There's only salmon and trout in here with you. Nothing that could attack you. Refocusing, I noticed Ty had gotten a little too far ahead of me and I kicked hard to catch up with him. He had drifted close to the school of salmon and as I approached, I must have been making too much noise because they quickly scattered into the distance. Atai shot me a bit of an annoyed glance over his shoulder and I raised both my hands in the universal sign for sorry. As I joined him, something caught my eye out in the distance, something bobbing up and down in the water a long cylindrical shape. I tapped Ty on the shoulder and then pointed. After a moment of looking, he gave a cry of excitement, the sound muffled by the regulator in his mouth. The old man of the lake. I had seen it countless times from the shore of the lake and others from the tour boats which crisscrossed the lake in the summertime. It was a huge floating tree stump almost 30 feet in length. The thing had become as famous as the lake itself, due to the fact that it had been floating around in the lake since at least 1896, when it was first spotted by a man named Joseph Diller. For one reason or another, even after over a hundred plus years in the water, it had refused to sink, and it floated freely from one side of the lake to the other. It also held a lot of superstitious significance, as in 1988, a submersible expedition tied up the stump on one side of the island, resulting in storm clouds to immediately move in. They disappeared when it was released and thus, the legend of it being more than a dead tree began. All of this flashed through my mind as I watched it bob up and down in the water like a buoy, at least a mile away from our location deep out near the center of the lake. I spared another glance at Ty and could immediately tell what he was thinking by the look in his eyes. I knew that it was one that I shared. He pointed towards it and I held up a finger before again checking my air gauge. Two hours left. I held it up and pointed at him. He came beside me and showed that he had roughly the same amount of air in his tank. Nodding, I pointed towards the log and gave a thumbs up. Ty gave an underwater fist pump, and I couldn't help but laugh at the absurdity of an underwater fist pump. 
letting in a small amount of lake water get in my mouth around my regulator. Shaking my head, I led the way out into open water. It took us about 10 to 12 minutes to reach it, but when we did, we couldn't help but stop swimming, bobbing up and down vertically in the water as we marveled at how big it was close up. At the waterline, the top of the stump rose about four feet out of the water and was about two or three feet thick. But down here, though, it was much thicker. I mentally calculated that it had to be about four or five feet thick in the middle. The entire underwater section of the stump was covered in a thick green moss. It was also present much farther down in the lake, but this was the only place near the surface in which it resided. I raised my camera and snapped off a few photos, some looking head-on at the massive shape, and others looking down as it fell away from us, at the few roots which still clung to its bottom. Ty patted my arm and then motioned for me to go float next to the stomp. He raised his camera, indicating that he wanted a snapshot of me with it. I shrugged my shoulders and then fulfilled his request by kicking over a few times until I floated almost directly in front of it. As he prepared his camera for the shots, I felt an odd sensation begin to creep over me. I wouldn't call it outright fear, but it was almost uncomfortable. It felt like all the hair on my arms and legs had stood straight up underneath my dry suit. I glanced around trying to figure out what had caused the instinctive reaction in me. But I saw nothing. I glanced at Ty and motioned for him to hurry up. He motioned for me to be patient and kept fumbling with his camera. The feeling amplified within me, now accompanied by a feeling of being watched, and not by something that you would want to have its eyes on you. I glanced around again. But aside from the stomp, I saw nothing. And that's when I realized something odd. All the while before we had been diving, we had seen dozens of salmon and trout. Heck, the salmon population in this lake alone is over 60,000. But now, I couldn't see a single fish. A chill went on my spine. Something's not right here. As much as I wanted to shrug away as a paranoid thought, I knew better than to ignore my instincts. I waved at Ty, but he was too preoccupied with the camera to see me. I made a grunting sound around my regulator, but I still got no response. And that's when I felt something slide against my leg. It was only for a moment, but it was the most unnatural feeling that I had ever felt on or over my body. It felt, it felt like bark, but alive at the same time. I shot a glance down, but saw nothing in my body. As I looked, I felt the sensation again, this time on my shoulder. I spun quickly around so fast that I left a small trail of bubbles behind me. There was still nothing, only the stump. Okay, screw this, I thought and I began to kick back towards my friend. That was when I felt something wrap itself around my ankle. This time, however, it did not let go. In fact, it tightened, almost painfully so. 
I instinctively reached down to swat at whatever it was, hoping that I would frighten it off, but instead, I felt something thin and hard there, still refusing to let go of my leg. I shot a glance behind me and couldn't help but let out a muffled scream at what I saw. What the? The object that was gripping my ankle, it looked like a tree root. It was thick and black and covered with green moss. That wasn't what had caused me to scream though. What had caused that was where it had come from. It came from the stump. I could see where it had slid out from, under the very bottom of the log. And it wasn't alone. From the bottom and sides slid out many more of the root things, for all intent and purposes looking like the roots they appeared to be, but slithering through the water in snake-like fashion, and they were coming for me. I screamed again and kicked out as hard as I could, attempting to free myself but unable to. A blur appeared beside me and after a moment of confusion, I realized that it was Ty. He had seen and heard my struggling and now floated beside me, his eyes wide and full of fear. Reaching down, he attempted to pry the root from my ankle, but to no success. The other root appendages had almost reached me now and I involuntarily let out another muffled scream, almost in defiance at my fate. In that moment, I felt with certainty that I was going to die. Ty reached down and unsheathed the knife from his ankle, and with a fury I didn't know he possessed, began slashing at the appendage that clutched onto me. Within a few cuts, the water began to cloud with a strange, greenish fluid. I felt the grip on my ankle loosen and unwind, and I instinctively kicked forward to fully free myself from its clutches. After a few kicks, my mind caught up with me, and I realized something. Tyler wasn't with me. I turned and was met with a horrific sight, one which I still see when I close my eyes. The reason why the root had loosened itself for me was to go after what was attacking it. Tyler, oh my god, it had caught him by the arm that he had used to slash at it with and was tightening its grip, far more than it had with me. I heard the sickening crunch of its wrist breaking a sharp sound that pounded through the water along with his muffled scream. And worse, the other roots had reacted as well and they had reached him. One large one as thick around as my thigh wrapped around his chest and squeezed. Still more of varying sizes slid in and wrapped around his arms and legs. Breaking myself free from the horrifying sight, I kicked back towards him rapidly. When the root had broken his wrist, the knife had fallen from his hand, disappearing into the depths. But I had to do something. As I approached him, however, the stump seemed to move away from me, almost to keep me just out of reach of my friend. A partially large root made its way out beyond all the rest, but unlike the ones which were gripping Ty's body, this one lashed out like a squid's tentacle. It struck me upside the head, and my vision blurred as I spun in a circle from the impact. For several seconds, I saw nothing but fuzzy shapes, 
and then my vision had cleared. I saw a small red cloud begin to surround me and reach up to feel a rather large gash near my hairline. Trying to keep myself conscious, I turned back towards the stump and tie, and I wished to God as much of a cowardice that makes me that I hadn't. If you've ever seen John Carpenter's The Thing, you'll remember the scene where Copper attempts to defibrillate Norris, who turned out to be a thing in disguise, and how his chest had opened up like a mouth. That was the sight that greeted me as I felt frozen in place. It was opening up. The middle of the stomp split apart and opened like it was on hinges, like it was a mouth. More roots slid out from inside the darkened space and I heard my friend let out another muffled scream as his air tank was ripped off his back by a few of them. The regulator was torn from his mouth as the appendage tossed the tank out to the side and more wrapped around his neck and head, effectively rendering him unable to move. I tried again to kick towards him, feeling my head spin with dizziness as I fought to keep from passing out, but I already saw that it was too late. The roots had a firm grip on him and rapidly pulled him back towards the opening. I wanted to look away, but I couldn't. He still had his mask on and behind the lenses, I could see his eyes wide with fear as he fought in vain to free himself. And then he was pulled inside, and I heard my friend scream one last time as the opening in the stump had closed. I saw a quick flash from the camera still attached to his wrist, momentarily illuminating the interior, and then it sealed up. It floated further away from me, and the roots and the tendrils retracted back. In the span of 30 seconds, it again looked like nothing more than an ordinary tree stump. Feeling a wave of nausea pass over me as well as a growing blackness envelop the edge of my vision, I could do nothing but kick for the surface. My head broke the water into the chilly afternoon air and... I spat the regulator from my mouth. I began kicking backwards toward the shore as hard as I could, all the while keeping my eyes locked on the four-foot-tall white shape bobbing up and down above the small waves until I had made it to shore where I passed out. I awoke two days later in a hospital. A bandage covered my head where it had been gashed open and it hurt like crazy. I was greeted by the nurse, along with the two policemen and the park ranger who had let us enter. After a few questions from the nurse about how I felt, I was left alone with the policeman and the ranger, who, after telling me that these snowshoers that I had seen earlier that day had found me unconscious on the shoreline on their way back, proceeded to bombard me with questions. I tried explaining what had happened to them, knowing full well that I would sound insane and not caring. They needed to know what had actually happened. You've got to believe me, I shouted. I swear I'm not making this up. That thing is alive. But of course, they didn't believe me. 
they chalked up my story to my head injury. They also decided that Tyler had drowned, having something faulty happen to his air supply. He barely even got a mention in the local paper. Just another drowning victim. I was slapped with a huge fine for illegally diving and given a lifetime ban from the national park with the penalty of jail time if I ever stepped a foot in it again. Like I ever would want to. Veronica and Tyler's parents blamed me for his death. And as much as the doctors I keep seeing tell me it wasn't, I can't help but feel consumed with guilt. I mean, after all, why shouldn't I? I mean, I was the one who had thought it up. He would still be alive if it wasn't for my idea. Now, the one-year anniversary of that horrifying day is fast approaching, only weeks away. I can't help but think about anything but it as I sit on my couch night after night and try to drown my memories in guilt with bottles of whiskey and vodka. But not even the alcohol is enough to chase away the memories of that day. Of that thing, which pretends to be a stump. One which has floated around the lake for over a century. Every year, there are a few people who reportedly drown in Crater Lake. Oftentimes, their bodies are never recovered the lake being too deep to retrieve the remains. I'm pretty sure that the true reason swimmers disappear is much worse than that. Because when the camera flashed in Tyler's hand before it closed around him, I saw something that still wakes me up in the middle of the night, screaming. As it closed up, I saw the roots forcing their way into his mouth, down his throat. I think about trees and how their roots dig into the soil to slowly extract the nutrients from it, and I shake uncontrollably at the thought that that thing might have had a similar purpose for my friend. So I'm posting this as a warning. You can go and visit Crater Lake National Park, it's a beautiful place. You can even go walk around the edge of the lake, or take a tour on one of the boats. Both are perfectly safe. But whatever you do, stay the heck out of Crater Lake. There's nothing worse than waking up in a cold sweat, ruining a perfectly good night of sleep. If it's night terror as well, I can't help you there, but if you're just a naturally hot sleeper, then listen up. Ghostbed is here for you. As the makers of the coolest beds in the world, Ghostbed is your go-to for cooling mattresses, cooling pillows, and even cooling bedding. From their signature ghost ice fabric to patented technology that adjusts with your body temperature, every Ghostbed mattress is designed with cooling in mind. So whether you want a plusher mattress that cushions your shoulders and hips, or a firmer option with exceptional support, your Ghostbed will keep you cool and comfortable all night long. We love Ghostbed here, so we're so excited to share an exclusive deal for our listeners. For a limited time, get 40% off all Ghostbed mattresses, plus get two luxury pillows. Just use promo code MrCreeps at ghostbed.com slash creepsgast to take advantage of the exclusive offer.
That's www.ghostbed.com slash creepscast with promo code Mr. Creeps. We found an all-you-can-eat buffet in the middle of the woods. Written by Robo Booty. There I was on a Friday night, voluntarily freezing my butt off in an Arby's parking lot, waiting for eight suburban moms to drop their Boy Scout sons off so we could spend a sleepless night in the woods together. I was just a kid, probably 14 or 15, and was only going along because my dad insisted that camping built character. Frankly, I didn't even know what he meant by character though it did seem at times to be synonymous with both machoism and incontinence. I knew it was important to my dad that I went in. Maybe it would help me develop into the kind of man that he was. Something that, despite my teenage rebellious streak, I wanted for my life. So, I went. I was already starting to regret my decision as we piled into the Scoutmaster's van shoving and trampling each other in a fight for the front seats, like people gunning for the last boat out of town. As I took a third elbow to the ribs, I began seriously considering an Uber ride back home, but I knew Dad would be waiting there, and so I persevered. Eventually, the winners were decided, and the rest of us packed into the back like sweaty, pubescent sardines. I didn't like to roughhouse, and I found it barbaric, and also, I wasn't very good at it so I ended up with a spot in the very back. The air conditioning didn't work back there, and 15 years of warm Boy Scout grime had congealed into a goopy film that coated the entire pleather bench. It smelled like old baby vomit, like the nooks and crannies of an inner city Chuck E. Cheese, and it made me carsick before I even sat down. We rolled out of the parking lot and drove eastward, I took my last look at our town before we got onto the highway and headed for the middle of nowhere. Thanks to the media, people have certain misconceptions about Boy Scouts. Many see them as eager do-gooders who spend their time helping old ladies across the street and build wheelchair ramps. For example, see Russell from the Disney movie Up. This accounts for maybe 1% of Boy Scouts. The rest are reckless and spend their free time playing with knives, learning how to light stuff on fire, and making spears with their knives. Most of them couldn't care less about civil engagement, the scout oath, or learning how to tie a bunch of different knots. Sorry if this ruins your image of the Boy Scouts or if you are one of the 1% that actually care about the program, but this is or at least was the reality of scouting. It was basically a band of attention deficit teens and preteens looking for an excuse to screw around and not take showers. I was expected to survive a weekend in the wilderness with these kids, and the van ride was already killing me. Someone farted five minutes after we left, and the smell accumulated and lingered in the back. I hope you can empathize with my situation. When we reached the edge of civilization where buildings became sparse and interwoven with dark, foreboding groves of trees. At night, the woods can hide all sorts of mysteries that wait, hidden from the human senses, until you are right upon them. We drove on through the dark stretch of wood, the road turning from black to a worn-out gray, 
and narrowing until it could barely qualify as a two-way street. It wasn't long before itching for stimulation that some of the boys began to complain. One whined that his new hiking boots were too tight and that they were giving him blisters, which was odd because he was sitting down. Try as we might, we couldn't get him to put his shoes back on, and soon I was wishing that we really were at a Chuck E. Cheese, instead of what was rapidly becoming the most noxious environment known to mankind. I seriously thought about asking our doomsday prepper scoutmaster if he had a gas mask somewhere in the van, but decided that he wouldn't even give it to me if he did. The only voice of reason in the chaotic van ride was Marla, a super tough 50-something-year-old woman who had grown up in Alaska working as a tour guide for rich hunters from the lower 48. Fighting soon erupted about the foot smell, and Marla was the one who eventually put it out. With a few snaps, she had quieted the boys and a quick order made the shoes go back on in a flash. It wasn't long, however, before a new complaint was voiced by one of the boys that sent ripples echoing through the troop. I'm starving, one boy sighed. His name was Cole and he had thick glasses and breathed loudly through his nose. You should have gotten something from Arby's. We were waiting there for like 90 minutes, I told him. I wasn't hungry then, Cole explained. I was about to ask him how it was possible for him to be starving if he wasn't hungry 45 minutes ago when another boy chimed in. I'm hungry too, Jacob complained. I'm starving, said Levi. Soon a chorus of hangry boys rang out so loud and unanimous that nobody except for Scoutmaster Steve and I noticed that we had rolled into a clump of thick fog. It didn't last very long, but it was sudden and so thick that it blocked out all of the windows. For a moment, all they could see was swirling dark gray. And then as quickly as it appeared, the fog billowed away and left us back in the forest, or at least a forest. It wasn't very perceptible, but if I squinted hard at the trees zipping past us, I thought that I could see a glowing blue light in the distance. It looked like a deep blue sun was rising far away, deep within the trees. The road bent and we started heading straight in the direction of the glow. And the closer that we got to it, the stronger the light became. It went from a faint royal to a brighter baby blue which grew into a sharp electric neon blue. Almost like the world's biggest bug zapper was waiting for us up ahead. The reality ended up not being much different. In the sudden cacophony of hungry voices, one voice rang out above the rest. Look, a restaurant. One boy pointed towards the source of the blue light. We all turned instinctively and saw a tall blue neon sign that read, All You Can Eat Buffet 24-7. Below this, in smaller letters, were the different types of cuisine they served. The list was long enough that it would have dissuaded even the bawdiest foodie with so many different types of food all being served 24-7 in the middle of the woods, there was no way that any of it was very good. But all you can eat sounded the most enticing fantasy to most of the boys, and a worthy challenge to the rest. And they all started begging Scoutmaster Steve to pull over. Our troop mantra could have been, boys will be boys, 
Steve resisted initially, alternately promising that we would love his rabbit stew and scolding us because real survivalists, which we were not and never wanted to be, didn't eat at buffets. He threatened to drive on, but almost as though fate herself had heard the boy's cries. In that very moment, a tire popped. Cheers erupted from the benches and Steve cursed under his breath. Marla, who was also up in front, turned to him. Do you have a spare? Yes, of course I do, Steve said proudly. The scout motto is, be prepared. Of course I have a spare. And then a smile faded and he switched to a hushed tone. But it's pretty thin and old and I don't know if it'll get us all the way to the campsite. Our best chance of getting back at all is probably to just turn around and go back to town once I put it on. Marla nodded. From the faces the boys had made when Steve mentioned his rabbit stew, she knew they wouldn't be very disappointed to know that the trip was off. Nah, I guess we could at least let him eat at the place, Marla said. To be honest, all their whining about being hungry has me feeling a little famished too. My stomach growled when I heard Marla say those words. Hunger, like most human sensations, is very suggestible. Though I don't know why they want to eat here of all places. Steve laughed at this. To a hungry teenage boy and all you can eat buffet is like dying, he chuckled, and going to heaven. I'll change the tire and you go in with them. You sure? Marla asked. Oh, believe me, I'll be happier changing the tire. This made them both laugh, and then Marla turned around to address the scouts. Okay, boys, listen up. Scoutmaster Steve is going to change the tire and he doesn't know if the spare will make it all the way to the campsite, so we're probably just going to have to go home. All of two boys groaned and somebody whispered, Thank God. Since we won't be able to make Steve's a delicious rabbit stew, Marla paused for a dramatic effect. He graciously decided to buy us all dinner. The boys erupted in cheers again and she winked at Steve. There was a cute dynamic between them. I wondered if maybe they were having an affair. The scouts went pouring out of the van faster than they could recite the scout oath. I waited for my turn in the back seat and looked at the conspicuously conspicuous restaurant outside. What were the chances that our tire would pop right in front of it? I wondered to myself. No one else seemed to share my concern or even notice that. There were weeds coming up through the road in front of the restaurant which didn't seem to have any name except for all-you-can-eat buffet. There was also a suspicious lack of cars in the parking lot. It seemed to me that a restaurant with food from 20 different countries would have a few cars in their parking lot for staff, or at least a delivery driver. Perhaps they were all in the back, I thought. It was a weird place for a restaurant for sure, but I was hungry and any place sounded better than the back of that van. What was the worst that could happen? Food poisoning. Still sounded better than staying in the van. I hopped out and ran over to the others. Steve popped in to pay for our meals and then popped back out to fix the popped tire. Inside, Marla led us to the front desk where an elderly Chinese man had greeted us. He listed off all of the different food options available and where they were located. The physical restaurant was huge from the inside with probably eight or nine different large rooms that presented 
wide tables and countertops spilling over with copious amounts of delicious-smelling food. Our eyes widened like gobstoppers as the host toured us through the labyrinth of culinary delights. The food looked good, almost too good. I had to get up close and examine some honeydew to make sure that it wasn't plastic. Everything was so overwhelmingly perfect that I almost didn't notice Marla already with her plate, sampling the macaroni salad. She took a taste and her mouth had twisted into a pleased smile. The host shepherded us into the next room, a seafood in Mongolian. While behind us, Marla scooped more and more macaroni salad onto her plate. Then there was a wet plop. I turned and saw Martha's head buried in the vat of macaroni salad, munching away under the surface. Some other boys noticed and laughed. I wanted to go check on her, but the host ushered us on. Something wasn't right. There was too much food for a small restaurant in the middle of the woods, but something else was bothering me as well. Besides the silent host who was very persistently escorting us into the bowels of the Amnes restaurant, there didn't seem to be any other staff. There weren't any servers or any people bringing out new trays or removing old ones, or anybody wiping down the tables. I thought back to the carless parking lot and I started to wonder if there really wasn't anyone here except for us and this old man. I took a good look at him and that's when I noticed that something really worried me. Even though he seemed to be walking, his feet weren't moving. It was like he was gliding over the floor. I hadn't noticed before because I was in the back of the group, but now that I had picked up on it, I couldn't believe I didn't realize sooner. He wasn't walking, he was floating. What was this place? I started to feel dizzy. The room with its piles of dazzling food moved around me at a mile a minute. Meanwhile, the host passed plates out to the other scouts, who quickly dispersed throughout the building. His silent smile burned through me. I tried to call out, but I couldn't. My heart was in my throat. We were in some kind of human flytrap, and for some reason, I was the only one who could see it. It didn't take long for the toxic effects of the food to work on the other boys. I watched Cole take a bit of apple crisp, before plunging his face into the pan. Meanwhile, Levi was shoveling mashed potatoes down his throat by the mouthful, until it pushed out of his nose like a Play-Doh toy. A kid named Paul was cracking muscles open like a wild animal and couldn't get them in his mouth fast enough. Oil and brine mixed with saliva foamed down the sides of his face. Joshua had his face hidden in a hot pan of crawdads. I screamed when he stuck his head up for air. His skin was red and covered with blisters. Pus oozed from open sores around his eyes and nose. He looked like a burn victim, and yet after taking a quick gulp of air, he stuck his head back into the hot pan for seconds. I desperately tried to run over to Paul and yank his head out of the tray, but I couldn't move. I screamed out of fear and frustration, which caught the attention of our gracious host. He had his back to me, but his head turned almost 180 degrees to face the source of the screaming, which unfortunately was for me. He then spun the rest of his body towards me, again without moving his feet, and slid forward with an artificial grin. I can tell that you're displeased, 
We want you to enjoy yourself here. Please accept a free dessert on the house. He pulled an ice cream sundae from behind his back with one hand, and he placed it on my plate. With the other hand, he offered me a spoon. I froze, not sure what my next move should be. I didn't want to upset this thing, be it a robot or an alien or whatever, and I definitely did not want to eat anything. He stood there, his hands outstretched and unwavering, waiting for me to accept the spoon. Cautiously, I accepted it and decided that I would try to fake eat to appease the smiling creature in front of me. I grabbed it, pretended to dip it into the ice cream, and then stuck it in my mouth and moaned a big, Mmm. He stood there looking at me. He didn't move at all, not even a blink. Jeez, they need to develop a more lifelike model, I thought to myself. Anyone who wasn't drunk on their food could instantly notice that something was off about him. I stared at him while he stared at me. If he were a real person, it would have been a very awkward moment indeed. However, given that he wasn't a real person and was instead some kind of waiter, bent on destroying a group of innocent children, it was less awkward and more pants-crappingly frightening. I couldn't figure out why he wouldn't leave me alone. I pretended to take another bite and really tried to sell it. So tasty, thank you so much. I said, hoping that that would do the trick. The host didn't move a muscle. His blank, smiling face was now only about 12 inches from mine. Had he gotten closer, I wondered. A quick glance at his feet gave me the answer. His feet were slowly gliding in my direction, bringing him nearer to me. I began to panic. I wanted to run away, but my own feet felt stuck in place again like I was standing in a block of concrete. In desperation, I looked around at my friends, hoping that someone was lucid enough to come help me. But everyone was completely entranced under the mysterious food spell. And that's when I realized what I was doing wrong. The host was closer, just barely six inches away, so I had to act fast. I turned so that my face was hidden from his view and flopped my face forward until... It was almost touching a bowl of pudding, which was the closest thing that wasn't hot enough to boil my skin, and began flailing my arms around and making slurping noises with my mouth. Mmm, so good. Yeah, oh yeah. I mumbled and crossed my fingers, hoping that the silent man would buy the act. I watched through the reflection in the silver bowl as he stopped inching closer, turned and whizzed away. He bought it. As soon as he was out of sight, I got my face as far away from that pudding as I could. I had been careful not to get any on my skin, but still feared that particles in the air could make it through my nasal canals and infect me. I inched my way over to the nearest boy, Ralph, and tried to talk to him, while he swiped butter into his mouth like his tongue was the world's driest piece of toast. Ralph, I whisper yelled. Ralph, snap out of it, it's me. He didn't react, not even to acknowledge that I was there. I reached over and tugged sheepishly on the wrist that was doing the butter scooping, but quickly regretted it when he grabbed my fingers and bent them back farther than they were supposed to reach. I heard a pop and my first three fingers swelled with sharp pain. It was all that I could do not to scream. Clutching my now crippled hand, I backed away from my friend Ralph. 
It didn't look like there was anything that I could do to help Emma, or any of the other boys for that matter. So I decided that my best option was to gradually make my way towards the front doors undetected. I started to shuffle out of the room when I heard the kitchen door open in the next room over. I stopped and pretended to shove my face into a big salad. Three men and one woman walked out in brown draping robes. They went over to Levi and the woman ran a long fingernail across his back, like he was a sports car that she was appreciating. The biggest man licked his lips. Let's hurry and do this, I'm starving, he said rubbing his hands together greedily. Calm down, the woman said. She lifted a lock of Levi's hair and yanked it. He didn't even flinch, just kept on eating. They're not going anywhere, look at them. She motioned around the building. Even for spellbounds, they're out of it. This will be a piece of cake. The group laughed together and I shuddered. They were like modern Hansel and Gretel witches, or in some kind of cult, and they planned on doing something terrible to my friends. I needed to get out of this restaurant and find Scoutmaster Steve, but I had no idea how I would slip out unnoticed now that the Hogwarts crew was here. I was so busy worrying that I almost didn't notice the figure standing across the table from me. Can you hear me? I looked up and saw that it was Steve. What a relief it was to see him and to see him not under the hypnotic influence of the broccoli slaw. I turned in the direction of the robed people to make sure that they weren't watching, then nodded to indicate that I could hear him. Don't eat the food. There's something wrong with it, I whispered. Oh, I know. I realized that when I walked in here and saw everybody like. He looked around at the scouts who were literally eating themselves to death. Well, like this. What brought you in here? Our tire didn't pop on its own. Someone threw bent nails out across the road, like they wanted us to get stuck here. That got me a little freaked out, so I ran in here to make sure that everything was okay. How come you didn't eat anything? I was the last one in line, and by the time that I got my plate, I could tell that something was wrong. What do we do now? I asked. Well, I guess we gather up the boys and Marla and get the heck out of here before anything terrible happens, he said. What about those guys? Who? Steve looked confused. He hadn't noticed the robed creeps. I pointed them out to him discreetly. Oh crap, where did they come from? That makes things complicated. Should we call the police? I suggested. He shrugged his shoulders. We could, but they would never get here in time. Good thing is that I've got my gun on me. Here's what I think we should do. He leaned over closer to me. Up near me, I could see that he was shaking, which as a kid really freaked me out. When you're young, you think you can always rely on the adults around you to handle the tough situations. Seeing a grown man that I respected so much shake with fear made me realize just how dangerous our situation was. I'm going to draw my gun on them. You take these. He tossed me his keys. When I tell you to, go into the van and grab the climbing rope from the back. You're going to use it to tie him up. Do you remember your knots? Around us, the boys stopped eating and stood up straight in unison, as if they were robots being controlled from a central remote. 
Unfortunately, we were too busy making our escape plan to notice. I don't know. I think so. I stammered. That's alright. I can walk you through it. Then, once they're tied up nice and good, we grab the rest of the boys and get out of here. Got it. He looked at me and there was a seriousness to his question. He was giving me the trust that he would give an equal. He needed to know that he could count on me. I swallowed the knot in my throat and nodded, opened my mouth to say the words, got it, but I was cut off by some different words spoken by a different mouth. Nay, hey, you two. We both whipped around to find one of the robed men pointing at us from the center room. The other three robed figures stood next to him, and all of the boys plus Marla were gathered around them in a circle, their heads hanging limply onto their chests and shoulders. They were all still and silent, totally hypnotized by those evil wizards, and ready at their beck and call like a zombie army. We were the only two out of the group or when standing in the circle, which proudly tipped them off to the fact that we were not hypnotized and we were planning to escape. That and also that we had been talking about our plan to tie them up at gunpoint and escape. Apparently they had heard us, evidenced by what the man said next. We heard your plan to tie us up at gunpoint and escape. The man cooed in a shrill and rasping voice. Steve let his head fall limp and began stumbling towards the center as if he was suddenly under their spell. Nice try, Scoutmaster. We know you're faking. Must obey. He's so hungry. He mumbled as he walked with his arms held out straight in front, like an old school Frankenstein monster. When Steve passed me, he turned his head ever so slightly and gave me a wink. And we saw that little wink too, the men said. So don't even think about trying any funny business, or your friends here are toast. But this threat did nothing to deter Steven. He just kept on walking like a zombie towards the group. Wait, said the biggest man. You sure he's not out of it, I mean? Do you really think that he would keep pretending like this even after being called out? That's a ballsy move if I've ever seen one. Shut up, Brother Thomas. Of course he's faking it. We just saw him talking to the boy not two seconds ago. The raspy-voiced man who seemed to be their leader said, I don't know, the bigger man replied. In 20 years, I've never seen anyone do something like this. He shook his head in disbelief. Meanwhile, Steve continued, stumbling his way forward, not even wavering in his dedication to the act. This is ridiculous, the leader said. Children, attack him. He commanded the Boy Scouts and Marla. They all simultaneously lifted up their heads, turned and charged towards Steve. However, before any of them could reach him, Steve pulled out his gun and shot the leader in the chest. As it turns out, dark magic isn't very effective against a gun, which coincidentally settled a question that I always had regarding a hypothetical wizard versus a muggle war scenario. Instantly, the group fell out of the mind-controlling spell's power. Ah, the three other robed cultists screamed at their fallen leader. Brother Humphrey, Brother Humphrey, are you alright? The big man they called Brother Thomas bent down and began performing CPR, pounding on his chest right beside the gunshot wound. With every push, blood squirted out of the hole. Stop, Brother Thomas, you're making it worse, 
the woman yelled. We can't let him die like this. Brother Thomas wailed and started pounding Brother Humphrey's chest even more vigorously, sending blood spurting every which way. What happened? Cole said, waking out of his stupor. Levi gave him a confused look. I don't know, he said slowly. All around, my friends started coming out of their haze. I smiled relieved that they were okay and that Brother Thomas didn't seem to understand how CPR worked. Scouts, listen up. Steve shouted out to the group. We need to get out of here at once. Is anybody hurt? Only Joshua, the kid who had burned his face in the crawdad tray, raised his hand. Josh, can you run? Steve asked him. He nodded in reply. Okay, we'll get you bandaged up outside. Everybody run as fast as you can to the van, he yelled. Some boys started walking nonchalantly towards the door. Run now, Steve yelled louder, and they all took off like scared horses. Unfortunately, the witch reacted before any of them could reach the door. She raised her arm up high, swung it once around her head, and shot chains out of her hands which wrapped around the door handles, locking us inside. Not so fast, she shrieked. You killed our leader, our beloved brother, the Grand Wizard Humphrey. He was a great man. No, he wasn't. He was going to kill us all, I yelled. She eyed me, shocked that I had said anything. I guess I didn't look like the kind to talk back to witches. To be honest, I was shocked too. He was a terrible man. Hush, boy, she hissed. He was the supreme leader of a great and secret society. One that feasts on the bodies of children like you. Steve gasped and cocked his head slightly in a confused stupor. We are the organization called the Red Cross. For millennia, we have used black magic to sacrifice innocent souls to the devil in exchange for power and youth. And I know what you're thinking. The answer is no, we're not related to the other Red Cross. People always think that we're related and it's like, are you kidding me? We've been around for thousands of years and they started in what, 1952 or something? Anyway, long story short, we're going to sacrifice you all to the devil. Please don't do anything to these kids. They've done nothing wrong, they're innocent. Steve cried. Yeah, that's the point. Didn't you listen to my speech? The witch asked. She sounded offended. Please, if you will, take me instead. I'll give you my soul if you agree to let the rest go. I thought this was a bit of a humble brag since it implied that Steve's soul was worth more than the rest of ours combined. Surprisingly, however, the witch considered it. Well, that's an interesting offer. She mused, scratching her chin in thought. The willing sacrifice of a soul, the laying down of one's life for one's friends. That kind of act generates so much innocent power that it might just be worth the rest. But, she gave Steve the stink eye. I don't like you. Please at least consider it. Steve pleaded from his knees. It was remarkable to watch somebody offer his life for mine. Steve was different, and frankly a little bit stupid, but he was a good guy. The three robed cultists formed a huddle and debated his offer. Eventually, Brother Thomas spun around and addressed Steve. It looks like we're going to have to pass, he said. What? 
But why? Well, it seems she just really doesn't like you. Brother Thomas explained with regret. I'll give you my soul. The room went silent and everybody looked at Marla. Will you take mine? The two men looked at their female counterpart inquisitively. She paused and then nodded. Okay, we'll accept your soul, she agreed. But are you sure that you want to go through with this? You're the only woman here. I was planning on letting you go for free. This made me worry, but Marla didn't even hesitate in her reply. I'm sure. I could never walk away from here knowing that I could have saved my friends but didn't. She glanced longingly at Steve. If I hadn't have been so touched, I would have realized this was strong evidence to support my affair theory, but none of that mattered. Marla was doing something few people ever had the strength to do. She was helping others when it was inconvenient for her in the gravest way possible. She was a hero. Okay, if you're so sure, we would love to have your soul. Come over here and take my hand. The witch said, reaching a thin pale appendage out from her draping sleeve. Marla slowly made her way over, taking one last look at the group as she did. Finally, she arrived at the witch. Will it hurt? She asked. The witch shook her head. Not even a little bit at least, I don't think so. To be honest, I don't have a clue. It's not like you can ask somebody how it went. Marla winced at the witch's callousness. So this means I'll die, right? Marla asked. That's right, the witch nodded. And with that, she grabbed Marla's hand. For a moment, everything went white and I heard a ringing in my ears. The sound of a trumpet from off in the distance. Slowly, the white faded away. And the real world came back into view with all its sights, sounds, and smells. Put your shoes on, Levi yelled. He punched Cole in the arm. I was surprised to see that we were back in the van, right around the spot where we had entered the fog before. At first I thought it had all been a dream and I felt an immense sense of relief, until I searched the front seat and noticed that Marla was no longer there. Gone was the silent yet brave, stoic and strong-willed woman who had entered the van only hours ago. Whoa, Josh, what happened to your face? One of the boys yelled. It seemed that the rest of the scouts had completely forgotten what had transpired in the mysterious Woodland restaurant, which ended up being a trap for gluttonous boys like us. I looked around the van and nobody seemed to remember what had happened to Josh's face. They all laughed and chatted away about their theories as to why he was inexplicably sunburned. And soon the conversation progressed to new topics, as normal conversations do. No one was too worried about the matter. They were more concerned about Minecraft, the girls from school, and Cole's stinky feet that he wouldn't cover up. It must be because they had ate the food, I thought. They had their memories erased. This made me realize that I might not be the only one with memories of the restaurant and of Marla's sacrifice. I looked in the rearview mirror and found two red, watery eyes staring back at me. One other person remembered. Hey everyone, I wanted to take a moment to tell you about a new podcast that has recently launched called Talking Heads Review. The Talking Heads Review is hosted by Adam Thorne and Sean Houlihan, 
Adam Thorne is the creator of Talking Heads Media, which has grossed over 10 million downloads across five different shows, including the Joe Rogan Experience Review Podcast, which is an Apple Podcast a Top 100 show. Adam and Sean take conversations from some of the top podcasts, including Lex Friedman, Russell Brand, Jordan Peterson, and many others, and add their own take on the ideas discussed. This will make the podcast world a little easier to navigate and provide you, the listener, the knowledge you need to find your next favorite podcast conversation. Taking ideas from the top podcasts, the two hope to expand on their conversations, provide a little context, and always add a bit of humor. Check out the Talking Ends Review, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. There is a set of hidden rules for the elevator game, written by Kyle Harrison. You've probably heard about a thousand different versions of this story by now, and you probably raised a few eyebrows skeptically and questioned whether or not any of them are true. I won't bother trying to convince you otherwise. Nobody is convinced until they play the game. I certainly wasn't growing up. You see, my parents managed a hotel where throughout the years we heard hundreds, if not thousands of kids, using the elevators to play the supposedly haunted ritual. In case you didn't know, according to the legend, if they pressed a certain number sequence in the elevator and also made sure that no one interrupted them, there was a chance that they could have an otherworldly encounter. All the wound up being for my father was an electrical headache. Since the hotel was old, a lot of times the elevator would shut down due to the kids mashing the buttons and constantly tromping in and out. There was even one time that a group of them got stuck, and he had to call the fire department to get them out. What are they hoping to find? I asked him. People like the thrill of the unknown, Lindsay. They want to chase after a dream, even when that dream can be a nightmare to others, he had said. That description fit my little brother Will to a T. Anytime he didn't have his nose stuck in a book, he was roaming the halls of the hotel, pretending to fight off monsters. For him, things like the elevator game weren't just fun though, it was serious business. Especially after his encounter with the tourist. I call the man that we met by that name simply because I never found out what the proper pronunciation of his real name was. All I remember distinctly about him is that he was tall and of oriental descent, and he appeared to be around the same age as my father. The tourist arrived during a particularly slow season for us, where the majority of the time dad was trying to catch up on invoices and refurbish the rooms, so he would let Will and I run the front counter. He brought with him only one item, a briefcase with the initials WR which my brother found interesting because they had matched his own. Are you a spy? Is that a bomb? Are you here to kill us? Will had asked, bombarding the man with questions. What brings you this way? I asked, not wanting the man to grow irritated and take his business elsewhere. We needed the money after all. Thanking you kindly. I am of request for one room singular for myself 
to finish what started many years ago. The tourist said with broken English as he patted the briefcase softly. How many nights are you planning to stay? I asked, typing in the information that he provided. As many long it takes to finish the game, was his response. That made my brother's ears perk up. Game? Are you here for a competition or something? Will asked. This made the tourist smile and he patted the briefcase again. This have a set of secret hidden rules inside. For elevator game, very important. Only way to win. Took long time to find. Now I can finish, he remarked. Wow, so you want to find a ghost? I could tell that Will was eating up every word the man said, but I had already written him off as a bit of a loony. Good luck, I told him, passing him a room key to a suite on the 10th floor and watching him move to the elevator. He was also walking with a slight limp. Once he was gone, Will started to pester me with questions about the ritual. How was it played? Why did so many people try it? Was it real? It got to the point that I decided to get him out of my hair by attempting the game myself. If I show you that it doesn't work, will you stop bothering me? I asked him with a deep sigh. He nodded eagerly. I rolled my eyes and after checking to make sure Dad didn't have anything else for us to do, shoot him over toward the elevator. Once inside, for a minute he just stared at the buttons and I sighed. Do you even know the rules? Um, yeah, I think we start on the second floor. He muttered as he reached out to press it. I snatched his hand away and rolled my eyes. It's the fourth floor and then we go down to the second. The elevator doors closed and we began to ride up. When they opened on the fourth floor, I waited a minute for them to close and then pressed the second floor. Then six, then two, then ten, then five, then one. You want to try? I asked him. He giggled excitedly and nervously and did as instructed. It took a grand total of fifteen minutes or so to complete the ritual. Each time the elevator would slowly creak its way up or down the shaft and I held my breath expecting some kind of maintenance failure to occur. Instead, the most exciting thing was that it went to the tenth floor on its own and Will clutched my leg, thinking that we would find a ghost. But the hallways were empty. See, I told you it's a waste of time. I said as I reached for the button to go back down. Wait! Please wait, hold the elevator. Both of us looked toward the closing doors to see the tourist running down the hall towards us. Instinctively, I pressed the hold button, but it didn't work. Instead, they closed and we began to descend to the bottom floor. I think maybe we should go back up for him, Will asked. I remember the man's face more than anything. He seemed distressed, panicked, fearful. It was unnerving when I thought about it. I didn't like the idea of having to see him again, so I told Will dismissively that he would catch the next elevator. Can we play again? He asked nervously. It's late, bud. We should do homework, I said as an excuse. In reality, I was hoping that he would either forget about it or be too scared to try again. But I underestimated my brother.
especially after what had happened with the tourist. It was Dad that made the discovery a few days later, when it was a little past time for our guest to check out. He was attempting to run the credit card information that the tourist had given us, only to find that it wasn't working. Cheapskates. I remember Dad muttering as he ordered us to go up to the tourist's room and demand an explanation. When we got there, the door to his room was already slightly ajar. I remember pushing it open and thinking that something smelled strange. Will and I took a step into the darkened room, flicking on the lights and came face to face with a scene out of a horror movie. There was red everywhere. Trails of it stained the carpet and the walls where it seemed that the man had been using his bare nails to scratch in a sequence of numbers over and over and over again. In the center of the room was the tourist himself, his left hand cut off and his eyes wide with the same expression of fear and panic that we had seen when he was dashing for the elevator door. And on the floor next to him, right before he died, he scrawled a most peculiar bloody message, one that still haunts me to this day. Find me. Change it. Will became visibly sick as he covered his mouth and went to the toilet to throw up, as I called downstairs to tell Dad what had happened. As I waited for Dad to arrive, curiosity got the best of me and I stepped over the tourist to peer at the note that was left. It looked like it had been written by the hand that was cut off, hasty and jagged letters covering the paper. There were lots of journals nearby and a small hand mirror, even a whistle like the kind you would use at a tournament. This is what the note said. To whomever finds these hidden rules... Please read them carefully as they are not the regular set of instructions associated with the ritual commonly known as the elevator game. You must enter the elevator on the first floor. This part remains the same. You must go to the sixth floor first, followed by the second, the fourth, and the third, and then return to six. You must step out on the sixth floor with the mirror in your hand and keep the mirror facing the elevator at all times so that you can keep it within your line of vision. Walk in a straight line until you reach the end of the hallway. Walk backwards to the elevator using the mirror and go back inside. If the elevator door closes at any time during this part, you will have failed. Once inside the elevator, you will need to let it take you to the second floor. Once you have made it to the second floor, you will find yourself somewhere that you do not belong. If at any time the elevator stops on the fifth floor, remain on the elevator. There is sometimes a woman that will enter the elevator here and she will attempt to speak with you. Do not speak back. Do not acknowledge her. Use the whistle if necessary. Follow these hidden rules and you will reach the end of your journey. The handwriting was jagged and fast as though the writer had been in a hurry. And at the bottom, a signature... It made my heart stop. William. Why was my brother's name on this note? Will stepped out of the bathroom, his face a mixture of sickness and confusion, and I crumpled up the note and stuck it in my back pocket. What is all that? He asked, wiping his mouth and seeing the journals lying in the bed. Take this down to our room, I ordered him, shoving it in his arms. Hurry, before Dad comes, I insisted. 
ever the obedient little brother, he followed my instructions without even missing a beat. Over the next few hours, Dad called the police and they swept the room for any clues as to the cause of death. Dad told me that I could go down and get some food or something, but for the life of me, I felt frozen in place as the cops moved in and out of the room, carrying with them different little pieces of bloody bedding or carpet and evidence bags. All the while, my mind kept flashing back to the tourist deranged and panicked expression from a few days ago when we had seen him rushing for the elevator. Was this my fault? Had I failed to save him? And perhaps, most importantly, did his death have anything to do with the strange ritual that he was obsessed with? With these distressing thoughts swirling around my head, I fell asleep from sheer exhaustion. The night after the tourist died, I poured through every single snippet of information that I could find on the game, searching for any reference to the hidden rules. I found nothing. In fact, I found less than nothing. Most of the stories were clearly hoaxes, written by internet users who wanted to get a quick scare for a few upvotes. Others were very detailed, almost realistic, but they always included some variation on the original sequence from the first website. That got to me thinking through about how in those particular accounts, when a person would get the sequence wrong or do something different, something bizarre would happen. What if, I wondered, they weren't actually doing anything wrong at all, but by changing up the original rules, they were actually unlocking some hidden code. I decided if I was going to learn anything at all about that secret, I would need to see what was inside that briefcase. Shuffing out of my inflatable bed on the right side of her room, I moved over to Will and I shook him gently to wake up. Sis, is everything okay? He whispered. Dad was a light sleeper and since we all had to share a room in the hotel, I gestured silently for him to follow me toward the door. Get the journals and follow me downstairs, I said back. He nodded and climbed out of bed, his eyes wide with eager excitement. With the notes in hand, we snuck down to the main lobby and I grabbed us a couple of hot chocolates from the snack bar as we settled in the lounge. Well yawned and we placed the items carefully on the table and then he picked up the mirror and waved it about for a second. What do you suppose all this stuff is? He asked. Well, that's what we're here to find out. I told him as I took the rubber band off the bundle of journals and I opened up the first in the set. Much to my chagrin, I soon found that the notes were not taken in English, but rather Chinese. Amid those strange symbols were numbers and other doodles scribbled, Almost aimlessly as though whoever had written this down had slowly lost their mind. Will was looking at the next journal which seemed like a log of some sort. There were numbers listed 1 through 10 in different variations. Most of them were scratched through. What is all this? My brother asked. The edge in his voice told me that he was both excited and scared. I didn't want to admit that I was too. It looks like they were attempting different sequences to the elevator buttons, I said as I skimmed through the journal. There had to be at least a hundred different ways to press the buttons, and if the scratches and scribbles in the journal were to be believed, the tourist had tried every single combination there was. Hey, look, it just stops here. 
Will said as he made it to the middle of the journal. It was a combination of 624-368. And it occurred to me that it was almost the same sequence the note that I had found in the briefcase had. Do you think maybe this is the right way to press them? My brother asked. My stomach clenched. I hadn't expected him to catch that so quickly. I still didn't know exactly what the numbers meant or what would happen if a person did press them, but he was already eager to find out. He bounded from the lobby over to the elevator and pressed the button, shouting for me to join him. Well, we should do this in the morning, I warned him. Are you kidding? I didn't wake up in the dead of the night to look over a bunch of boring journals. Let's go on an adventure, he said excitedly. The door slid open and I desperately tried to think of another good excuse as to why we shouldn't do this. If something goes wrong, we could both be stuck here all night and Dad would tan our hides. I told him angrily. I think you're just a chicken, he said, jabbing me in the ribs. I sighed and got in the elevator, realizing that I definitely didn't want him doing this alone. And then I pressed for the sixth floor. So, we pressed the second floor next, right? Will asked. My heart was already racing, especially as we had passed the fifth floor. I remember the notes, ominous warning. Listen, Will, you have to promise me something. I said as the doors opened on the sixth and we looked out toward the empty halls. Yeah, he responded, quickly pressing button number two. If, if we see someone, just don't say anything. Don't acknowledge them, okay? I told him. Uh, sure, he said with a giggle. We arrived at floor number two without incident, but my nerves were on edge. I'm serious, Will. We don't know why that man died. I don't want anything to happen to us. I said as I pressed for the fourth floor and added, If nothing happens, you have to promise me that you'll forget about this stupid game. Deal? The elevator shook. We went to floor four and then three. Now it was time to return to six, I thought. The elevator paused on floor five. For a moment, I held my breath. The doors opened, but there was no one there. Isn't this the ghost floor, sis? Will asked, just about to get off the elevator. Are you stupid? Stay on here, I ordered him. He laughed again and the doors closed shut. Jesus, you really are scared, aren't you? He said as we arrived at the sixth floor for the second time. The doors opened and I looked down the hallway. Nothing. It's just really late and I don't like this, I told him. He laughed and leaned against the elevator wall. I think I could do this a hundred times if you always made that face, he chuckled. The elevator shook and shimmied and I sighed. Okay, game's over. Can we go to bed now? I asked. The doors opened again and he kept laughing. Until I noticed that we were on the seventh floor, which was not the final destination in the sequence. I snatched him by the collar and held him back. Hold on, did you press for the seventh floor? I asked. Will stopped laughing and yanked his shirt away from my hand. I thought you did. What does it matter? Let's take the stairs up, he remarked. And that's when we heard the knocking. I looked up to see if maybe I was just sleepy, but Will had heard it too. There was nothing around, though. 
What the heck is that? Will asked as we walked out on the seventh floor. I kept close to my little brother. Something about this felt very wrong. The hotel hallway was eerily quiet, save for the occasional sound of the knocking. I'm sure it's someone playing a prank. We saw one of the guest doors slightly ajar. Room 7K. As we passed it by, the knocking increased and Will got curious and pressed it open. I tried to stop him from stepping inside, but instead found myself following in after. Except the room was bare, and I don't mean just without occupants. There was no furniture either, and no windows. As we stood there for a moment in the dim lighting, both of us had heard the knocking again. It sounded like it came from the other side of the walls. Let's get back to our room, I said. Will nodded and we left the bizarre room immediately. As we left, we heard the noise intensify and become louder. It put me on edge. We raced up the stairs, scared out of our wits until we made it to our floor and I caught my breath. When we got back to our room, neither of us said a word. It was best not to, because I don't think either of us really knew what to say about that. The next few days passed by and I put the game and the tourist out of my mind. I kept the notes under my inflatable bed, perhaps as a memento of the experience. But I had no intention of trying anything connected to the game again. Will seemed to have moved on too, becoming wrapped up in school. But it didn't last. Not long anyway. It was sometime that same week when Dad needed a little help running the counter that... We heard that same knocking again. I froze in place, trying to figure out if my mind was playing tricks on me. Dad showed up and said that somebody had checked out but I was so focused on the knocking. Don't you hear that? I whispered. Well, don't just stand there. Go and clean the room. Dad told us, ignoring me. We already knew what room it was going to be. 7K. Except this time when we entered, everything appeared normal. Furniture in place, windows where they should be. As I vacuumed and will clean the bathroom though, there was tension in the air. An unspoken truth that neither of us wanted to confront. Something had happened while we had played the elevator game. And neither of us understood what. And then as we started to leave, Will came out of the bathroom and was crying softly. Like the kind of tears you make when you're guilty of something. What's wrong? I asked. I didn't, I didn't want to say anything because I knew you would be mad. He admitted. I sighed and muttered. Out with it. What is it? I've been playing the game every night ever since what happened. Will admitted. My eyes widened and I glared at him. I just wanted to know if it would happen again. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry, he admitted. Why would you do that? I asked. He wiped his tears away. I don't know, because it was... I don't know what it was. But when we were here before, when things were different, I felt different too. I know you did too. Because I can see it on your face. I need to know how we did that, he said. God, don't be an idiot. You could have gotten hurt or worse running around this hotel by yourself, I warned him. 
No, Lindsay, stop denying it. We experienced something that night, and I think it's the start of something bigger, he insisted. And then he took out a scrap of paper and muttered. I went through some of the other journals. They had logs in them too. Sometimes they weren't always scratched out. I think that the sequence we had is almost the correct one. And if we figure out what the right one is, then what? We can get scared again, meet a ghost, grow up, Will, I argued. Stop trying to pretend that nothing happened. He shouted back and then added, I know it's real and I'm going to prove it. And then he ran into the elevator and pressed a button. Will, I chided him as I tried to follow after him, but it was too late. The doors were closing. I saw the bright buttons on the elevator telling me that he was descending to the first floor to start the game. Inwardly, my stomach was churning, hoping that this all was just an elaborate hoax still. I needed it to be okay. I needed what we experienced to make sense. The numbers flickered from 6 and then 2 and then 4, and then I saw it linger on 5 and my heart raced faster. Instantly, I pressed for the elevator to come to the 7th floor, but instead, the lights flickered for a moment and it jumped to the 8th. I didn't waste another moment. I was racing to the emergency stairs to make it and meet the elevator. I arrived just as the doors opened and my heart sank. It was empty. I must have spent at least a half an hour running from room to room, banging on doors and frantically calling out to my brother. And then eventually one of the guests had called downstairs and complained to dad. His face was one of disappointment and confusion as I tried to explain what had happened. And then he called the police. No ghost got your brother, we probably just have a weirdo in the building. He growled bitterly. It took the cops less than an hour to show up. They got a warrant and started searching from top to bottom for any signs of Will. Dad told me to stay in the lobby or in our room. I knew that he was mad at me. I mean, why wouldn't he be? It was supposed to be my job to keep him safe. And yet instead, I literally encouraged this fantasy, thinking that it would all make sense in the end. But now our whole world was falling apart. Nothing made sense and Will was gone. A few days went by and despite my father's efforts to keep up the search, the police labeled my brother as a missing person and forgot about him. I didn't blame them of course, I knew that they were doing the best they could under the circumstances. They checked the security feeds. They made sure that not a single guest left the hotel within a 48 hour period. Every bag, every room, every nook and cranny had been explored. What else was there to do? I knew the answer, of course, even if I didn't want to say it. The hidden rules. They lingered in my mind throughout the entire ordeal. Somehow Will had been right and had managed to cross over to wherever, meaning the only way for me to find him would be to cross over too. It took me a whole day to work up the courage. I wanted to wait until Dad was sound asleep and then, with the briefcase in tow, I started toward the elevator. This time I resolved that I was going to follow the note explicitly. I pressed the button and took a few calming breaths, trying to convince myself this harebrained scheme was going to work. As the elevator rode down to the first floor, 
I placed the briefcase down and reviewed the note again. 62436. And then the elevator would take me to the second floor as my final destination. I paced the lobby for a moment, my palms sweaty. I knew that it was not a hoax anymore. I knew what I was walking into. But my brother needed me. So I stepped inside and I pressed the first button. Slowly, the elevator doors creaked close. The next few moments were tense. I thought that I could hear my heart beating faster as we had reached floor 4 and then 5 and finally 6. As the doors opened, my face felt flushed and I was sweaty, but I had to keep going. I pressed on for the second floor and then the fourth and then the third. Nothing had happened so far and maybe nothing would. I had almost convinced myself that Will's disappearance was still in the realm of factual evidence when the elevator began to move itself toward the fifth floor on its own. I tensed up, recalling the warning about the mysterious woman that the note said to never interact with. As the doors opened, I expected the worst, but I was only greeted with that same eerie quiet. The doors lingered open for a second and I reached on to open the briefcase. I was almost there. Now I needed to follow the strange ritual with the mirror. I pressed the sixth floor and waited as the elevator shimmied up. I took a few slow, steady breaths and then stepped out to the hall on floor six. The elevator door stayed open. I took the mirror in my hand and slowly raised it to my eye level, just enough where I could see the empty box. And that was when I saw her. She was standing there in the reflection of the mirror, just standing and waiting in the elevator, without so much as a flinching motion. She wore this long, white nightgown that went to her ankles and had dark matted hair covering her eyes and pale face. But there was no doubt in my mind. This surely had to be the woman that I had been warned about. I took a few steady breaths again, my heart pounding even louder as I walked slowly down the hall with the mirror facing the elevator. The woman didn't move. It was like she was waiting for me to return. Finally, I reached the end of the hall, my palms sweaty as I struggled to not look at even her reflection. And then I began to walk backward. Why was she just waiting? What did she want? I couldn't hear anything in those halls, not even my own footsteps. The air felt tense. I was almost there. She still hadn't moved at all. Was she smiling now? Out of the corner of my eye, it seemed like she was, but I couldn't be sure. I didn't want to risk even bringing my eyes close to hers. I didn't know what this woman was capable of. All I knew was that she was dangerous and she was evil. Finally, I made it to the elevator. I kept the mirror near to my eyes where I could see that she was standing just behind me at neck level. It was a smirk, I was sure of it. I lowered the mirror down thinking that maybe this was just a trick of the light. Maybe without the mirror I would return to the normal world. So I tentatively reached my hand forward to press the next button. And then her pale fingers moved past mine in a flash and the woman pressed it for me. Our skin nearly touched and I instantly looked toward the floor, not daring to make a move. The elevator shimmied again as we rode down to floor 5 and the doors opened once more.
I got the sense she wanted to leave the elevator, so I scooted to the left and kept my eyes down, watching her bare feet shuffle out of the box. And then at last, she was gone. The doors closed and I drew a sigh of relief and I pushed for the second floor. Finally, this ordeal was over, I thought. But I was only getting ahead of myself, sadly. For as the doors opened to the second floor, I found myself immediately off-put by the way the floor was set up. There were no doors, you see, not like the regular setup where they were all in a row. Instead, it was just a blank wall with no indication of any guest rooms at all. I considered waiting and riding back to the first floor, but Will was somewhere amid this maze I had realized, so I stepped out and began to explore. The carpet made no sound as I walked and explored the long hall, my eyes always turning back to make sure the elevator was still there, but nothing else ever was. There wasn't even any indication as to where the illumination was coming from. It was just this sort of artificial glow that seemed to emanate, no matter how far down the hall I went. And then I stopped and looked down toward the end of the hall and turned around and looked back at the elevator. I was squarely in the middle of the hall. No matter how many steps forward that I took, nor however many back, it was an endless hallway. And then I heard a door open behind me. Well, I whispered, turning toward the elevator. But now it too was gone in this nightmare. Instead, only the walls remained, and a singular guest room. 7K. Again? How could that be if I was on the second floor? I wondered as I went up to it and knocked softly. It seemed to be the only thing to do. And then it opened and I found myself staring at a man that reminded me of the 1930s detective comics with the fedora and a long trench coat. He was tall, a bit foreboding, but he didn't even so much as make a move toward me as I stood at his doorway, so I figured I should be the first one to talk. Hello, my name is... It no longer matters. He told me softly as he finally opened the door wider and let me inside. I shuffled in, curious to see how he had set up a room 7K. It was no longer empty like when Will and I had visited. Instead, the detective had layers and layers of diagrams, of photographs, and notes pinned on the walls. There didn't seem to be a bit of empty space anywhere, except in one singular part of the wall where he had used his fingernails to scratch out a message. Who is woman? It read as I sat down on one of the chairs and he went to get coffee, my eyes wandering his messy research. How long have you been here? I asked. That doesn't matter either. What matters is where I'm going next, the detective replied. And where might that be? I asked. He returned a moment later with coffee and smiled at me, his gestures and features a bit more shaky now. Was he the one nervous? He looked familiar as I caught his eye and I saw a briefcase next to him on the floor. Was that the same one from the tourist? The one that once had journals in it? This belongs to someone. You have to return it to them and don't take the journals if you want to see your brother again. He said, passing it to me. How do you know about that and how do I find somebody who's already dead? I have that same briefcase. 
It's what led me here with notes from my brother, I said in confusion. And time works differently when you're inside the game. We no longer exist and yet we cannot leave this place. I am bound to this place now that we have met. The detective answered before I could even get my next words out. I looked toward his walls of evidence. You came here to find something, didn't you? I asked. All of this felt foreboding. An inevitable destiny that I couldn't escape. His eye twitched. I stood up and examined the photographs. Some of them were just of empty hallways. Others were of the woman at a distance. Never in full view, always blurry. Some of them were of me. And then there were news articles of buildings across the world. Similar to the ones that I had seen online of different variations of the elevator game. But these were far older all the way back to before World War I. And in some of those same photos I saw my brother. Trapped in the past, chasing for an exit. But instead, you became trapped. A prisoner to this place. I realized as I returned to the mess in his room. We're all prisoners here, even to her. He said with a whisper as he looked toward the wall where he had scrawled his question. Do you think you will ever know the answers? I asked. I think I have them all, but you won't like it. The detective told me. And then he pulled his coat a smidge and showed me a loaded revolver in his belt holster. My eyes grew big as he unhooked it and cocked the weapon. The barrel of the gun pointed straight at my head. He twisted it upward toward his temple and pulled the trigger. Blasting his brains out as I watched in numb horror. His body fell to the floor as the limp doll. I darted the room too frightened to stay another moment. To my relief, the elevator had returned. I took the briefcase and I didn't look back until I made it to the lobby back to my own world. I didn't stop until I got back to our room and hid the briefcase under my bed again. I was expecting to see the other one where I had left it but it was gone. Or it had never been there, I wasn't sure. My father came in to check on me. He had a worried look, probably hadn't gotten any sleep at all since my brother had disappeared and he asked if I was feeling up to doing a little housekeeping. I told him yes, anything to get my mind off of what had happened to Will. He sent me up to the seventh floor again to shampoo the carpets in the room. I almost dreaded going back to that cursed room. But eventually my sense of well-being and calm had returned. I was safe now in this world. Still the directions the detective gave me were clear and I knew that it would be impossible for me to ignore forever. I thought as I brought the briefcase to the room. I had to obey the secret's rules if I wanted to find well. Especially when I found something stashed in the vent in that suite. The screws had been loosened ever so slightly and it seemed as though it had happened recently. Reaching inside I found a small paper bag Inside was a 42 revolver. It had the distinct smell of having been discharged recently. How was this world connected to the one that I had been lost in? I put the briefcase on the bed and looked at the gun a little bit closer. It had Will's initials on it, just like I expected. And then I heard a noise, something from the hall. I turned and looked up to see a familiar face. The tourist. 
He was alive and he looked like he had come to this room searching for someone. When he saw me, his eyes got big and he grabbed the briefcase and ran. Instinct took over me and I dashed after him. I think I ran harder than I ever have in my entire life. The way that his eyes danced and lit up when he saw, it told me that he knew something. He had answers about Will. So despite the fact that I could only faintly hear his footsteps, I was hauling. I turned the corner and saw him. He paused for a moment to try and consider his next move and I used that moment to rush toward him. He turned toward me, shocked to see that I was still in pursuit and started to run again, but it was too late. I tackled him down, my arms intertwining around his chest and fumbling to the carpeted floor. The briefcase went flying. We tumbled and tossed for a few moments as we fell, his right hand reaching for something in his pocket. I got to it first. It was a switchblade. For some reason, I felt a rush of frustration and anger take over me and I held it next to his skin. Stop, just stop. I don't want to hurt you, I ordered. Thankfully, he obeyed. He froze and reached his hand toward my face before asking, Why, why you follow, follow me to the grave? I pushed myself off of him and muttered, I came to find my brother and I knew that you would have answers. What do you mean by that? He got into a crouched position, wiping the sweat from his brow and muttering, You're not supposed to be here. Unlucky. I don't give a crap about your stupid ritual. Now, you're going to come with me and we're going to find him together. Translate your journals and maybe piece together what I need to do next. I told him, waving the switchblade back and forth. No, I cannot leave, he insisted. And it looked like he was going to run again. So I quickly sidestepped and twisted his arm, putting the blade against his back. Look, I know this is important to you, and you can get right back to your stupid game once you help me find Will. I snapped and added, Don't make me do this. Please, I just want answers. He hesitated for a moment, but finally nodded reluctantly as we moved toward the elevator. I picked up the briefcase and took it with us and asked where we were supposed to take it. I do not know. The game has never played out this way, he admitted. Once the elevator door was closed, I slumped to the floor of the box in relief and started to breathe in and out rapidly. That run had taken the last of my energy. This isn't going to go the way you plan, the tourist warned me. I was about to ask him what he meant by that when suddenly the elevator shook and then it stopped altogether. We were in between floors two and three. It was stuck, just like I had feared. The lights flickered and I heard the tourist begin to chant and pray. Get a hold of yourself, we're going to get out of here. I told him, making him look me in the eye. He said nothing, he just looked at the ground. His lips were trembling. And then the lights flickered again and I saw out of the corner of my eye what was troubling my passenger. We were no longer alone in the elevator. She had returned. As soon as I saw her pale legs and bare feet, it was like pin needles were being stuck against my skin. I was hardly able to move and I wanted to hyperventilate. And the man that was there alongside, a man that I had seen dead only days before, was not offering anything substantial to make the situation better. 
His eyes were glued shut and he was chanting. We needed the prayers, that's for sure. Because this was definitely something that I couldn't figure out what to do. The woman just stood there and barely out of my line of vision. I knew that her eyes were on me even if I didn't look. She was waiting for us to acknowledge her. And that terrified me. I was sure at any moment that she would make a move and reach out and touch me, and it only made me want to vomit. Why was I acting like this? I had nothing to connect her to being dangerous, other than the words on a stray note. Yet I knew, I knew it as soon as I saw a glimpse of her, that she was deadly and powerful. So instead, I focused on what I could do. I whispered to the tourist to try and draw him out. How long have you played this game? I asked quietly. I knew of course that she could hear us, but I figured a distraction might make things easier. After all, we had been there two hours stuck and I already knew my cell phone wasn't working. We were trapped until we figured out what she wanted. It was just another part of the game, I told myself. I had to keep telling myself also that it was a game that could be won. After what I had seen happen to both the tourist and the detective, I wasn't so sure. Years, the tourist finally said after what had been the longest pause. Why, what's the point? What are you after? I asked, scooting closer. It. Difficult to explain in mere words. There is more to it than just an end goal. It is an experience that cannot be rationalized. You have felt this too. This is why you are here. The tourist explained. I couldn't deny that. More than anything though, I wanted to find Will and get him back to our side. But now that I think on it, I have grown to understand a little about what the tourist means. It's enticing. These kinds of secrets. You think you understand the world and how things work, and then you see or feel something that doesn't fit. Like a woman standing in an elevator. Just standing and waiting for you to open up to whatever is beyond your reach. That sort of beyond is downright terrifying if I'm being honest. Because it can't be sorted out. It's an infinite unknown and it's like a black hole. Drawing everything and everyone into its hungry maw. We are going to get out of here, I told him. The tourist didn't seem so sure. It's not possible. Told you already, it won't let me leave. And this is karma, bad karma for even attempting it. He said, shaking his head vehemently. We can do it if we work together. I told him and pointed slowly toward the roof of the elevator. There was a case of some kids that got trapped in here a few years back. Dad had to climb down the rope and haul them out. I saw him do it too and I know there's an emergency release button for the doors on every floor. I told him gently. You think escape that easy? He laughed as he pulled his legs up to his shoulders and crouched in fear. He was paralyzed with indecision, convinced that his fate was already decided. Maybe he wasn't wrong. I had to see him die. Could something like that be erased? I had to try. I stood up, focusing on the latch overhead. It wasn't very big. We would have to slip through one at a time. You're going first, and then you help me and pull me up. He continued to shake his head no, and I sighed realizing that he needed some kind of convincing 
and sadly the only thing that I could threaten him with was only mere feet away. Listen to me, if you don't do this, I'll make sure that you talk to this thing and get stuck here forever. You hear me? I snapped. The tourist stopped shaking and thought about my warning, and then he got up and nodded vaguely, keeping his eyes on the floor. I will help, you will not believe until you see for yourself, he remarked. I didn't have time to ask what he meant by that, so I cupped my hands and gestured toward the ceiling. I'll boost you up, I told him. Just as he was getting ready to lift up, I felt the girl move closer toward me. Was she alarmed by the fact that we were leaving? I could feel her breath on my neck. Let's go, I urged the man. He used his nimble fingers to push the latch open and then carefully slid it open, giving us a view of the long endless chasm that stretched down above. It seemed to go for miles. He tossed the case up first. I wobbled a bit and pushed him up, encouraging him to climb. I felt a cold hand against my shoulder. She whispered in my ear, Don't go. It felt so terrifying. Such a simple phrase, I wanted to respond. It took all of my willpower not to. Help, I urged the tourist. For a sharp moment, I thought that he was going to leave me there, with her. And then he returned in the crawl space a moment later and extended his hand. I grabbed a hold of it and he started to lift. Surprisingly for a man of his size, he was able to haul me up with ease. Once on the roof of the elevator, I gestured above to the dim light that was pouring into the shaft from the doors above. There's our way out. Below us, the girl began to scream. The tourist clenched his fingers against the side of the elevator and muttered, There is no way out of here. Enough of that, I shouted as I reached in my pockets. The whistle that might be the only item that I hadn't used. I blew hard on it. The elevator shook and I grabbed the cables and told the man to do the same. Will needed me. I blew on the whistle again once we were against the rope and we had a firm hold on it. And then below us, the elevator dropped and I heard her screams reverberate throughout the elevator shaft. And it seemed to grow louder the further that it fell. There's the emergency switch. Press it, I told him, gesturing toward the left side of the door. The old door slid open slowly and I saw the familiar drab carpets. Just as they had finished opening, the elevator began to move and come towards us. She wants us to stay with her forever. The tourist squealed as he clutched the briefcase. Move it, I told him. We scrambled to get into the third floor hallway. It was mere seconds before the elevator rolled up to meet us. I collapsed on the carpet and felt certain that the doors would open and the ghost would come attack. Yet instead, as they did stop, I was shocked to find the box and now empty. She had vanished. This is where we die, he muttered. My heart finally stopped, beating like a drum as I looked about the empty corridor. I don't really care where we are. You need to tell me how we return this thing so we can get my brother back. I said, gesturing to the suitcase. Won't be possible, he insisted. I sighed, ignoring his banter for a moment as I searched for the stairs. A few minutes later, I realized that I couldn't find them. Then when I returned to the hallway, I found that the tourist was missing, and one of the doors was ajar. I 
leave for five seconds and you're trying to run. I muttered as I entered the room. And then I froze as I realized why I looked familiar. It was the same room that Will and I had found him in that first night, dead. The tourist was sitting on the edge of the second bed, clutching his briefcase and nervously fidgeting as I entered. He looked toward me and slightly a bit. I told you, told you not to come. Would be bad, and now bad will befall me. I went against it. Now I am part of it. His English was even more broken than normal. He sounded extremely distressed. Part of the game, how is that possible? I asked him. He unlocked the briefcase and took out the notebooks where he had scribbled probably a thousand times before. The one who seeks all will come to finish my game. I cannot leave Rome. You must go in my place, he told me. What do you mean you can't finish, we just... The words didn't even leave my mouth. I turned toward the door only to find it was gone entirely. The room was making sure his destiny came true. I have become part of the game, but you don't have to, he said. When I turned back to him, it seemed like the man was talking clearer than he ever had. I think it wanted you to see the consequences, though, of what happens when you defy it, he told me anxiously. There was a knock on the wall where the door should be. Hide in the bathroom, please. You must hide to live, to finish the game and find your brother, he insisted. I heard the knock again, and it was loud. How did it expect to enter the room without any doors? I hurried to the bathroom and closed the door almost all the way, letting it peek just a tad to see what would happen. I wish I hadn't. The knock came again, and the tourist cleared his throat. I am ready. Come. Something in the wall moved. It formed an outline right where the door should have been and took the shape of a body. It was tall but had no head to call its own. The clothes that it wore resembled something a traditional bellboy might wear, and in its hand was a long razor sickle, glistening in the dim light. The headless apparition moved toward the tourist and I watched in bewilderment as the man offered his left arm out to the beast. Without a word, it sliced apart his appendage. The briefcase fell from his severed hand and the creature retrieved it. Then just as quickly, the creature slipped back into the walls. I rushed out to him and saw that he was covered in his own blood. He was crying and shaking in shock. I couldn't tell if they were tears of joy or hopelessness. The way will be clear to you. I understand it all at last. Thank you. I am free. He said as his lips trembled and he fell to the floor. I looked over to the wall and saw the door had magically reappeared and for a brief moment, I glanced back at the tourist. His severed hand was moving with a mind of its own, scrawling those mysterious numbers on the carpet and walls in blood as the door hung open, the game urging me to continue. I didn't look back toward the lifeless eyes of the tourist this time. I had seen that before. Now the future was unfurling before me and it was limitless. I felt like maybe I did have a chance to find well. I returned to the hall trying to find another clue. I stumbled backward and saw that the elevator was gone, my ticket back to normalcy. I looked about the hallway wondering what ghost would come up next. 
and then I heard it behind me, that same knocking. I zipped through the halls until I could find the stairs. Thank God they finally showed themselves, and I didn't stop until they had made it to the sixth floor. Finally too exhausted to keep going, I collapsed near a window. The hazy red sky beyond my hotel told me that I was still trapped in the game. As I slammed my fist against the glass, I began to cry, wishing this stupid game would end. I had seen death several times and been haunted by monsters beyond imagination. I just wanted to find Will and so far all I had done was return the briefcase to a ghastly monster. Now with nothing to tell me where to go next, I felt that I was at the end of my rope. And then I felt a hand touch my shoulder and I nearly jumped and screamed. It was the detective, except he didn't look as old as he had before. His face was clean shaven and at last I realized why I knew his eyes. Will, it's you, oh my god, I said holding back another scream. I hugged him as tight as I could, not wanting that moment to end. But as we pulled away from each other, I realized his eyes were tainted with sadness. How long have you been here? I asked him. It doesn't matter, you managed to return the rules to the game. That means that I can finally go home, he said with a smile. But I saw you die, I saw you trapped here, I said. Another time in another place another game, but rules are made to be broken even if you don't understand the consequences. He said as he passed me something. It looked like the mirror that I used to protect myself when first arriving at this strange place. Watch me leave through this mirror and I can go back to being young. Wait, what? What do you mean? What consequences? I asked. I can return, but you have to stay now. You are now a part of this, and that's how it works. The game always wins, he told me. You have become the ghost. I looked down at my skin and saw that I had been running so long that I was barefoot. My skin lacked color from lack of sun. I probably looked disheveled and defeated, and I realized why the woman from the elevator had frightened me so much. She was me. Behind us, I saw the elevator was materializing, and the knocking had returned. The creature was hunting well, determined to make sure that he couldn't leave. I'm sorry, Lindsay. I'm sorry I did this to you. I promise that I'll try to find a way to get you out of here. He said with tears in his eyes, as he told me to hold the mirror up. No, you can't. Take care of Dad. That's your job now. You must promise me that you will make sure that he's okay, I said as I tried to not cry. My aged brother knew that my father would likely never understand what happened, but no further words were spoken between us. He mouthed another apology as the elevator opened. I saw in the reflection of the mirror that he suddenly reverted to being young again, and then the doors closed and I was alone. The knocking got closer, it overwhelmed me. I recalled what the tourist had said. I'm ready, come on, I said. And then the headless creature appeared from out of the wall, holding the briefcase and offering it to me. I took it and went to the room where this all began, 
and sat down and looked at the drab walls and the endless abyss that I was trapped in. Tears in my eyes as I realized that now I was going to be here for God knows how long, waiting for the cycle to repeat. I read the notes, now no longer in Chinese but my own tongue, written by my hand. The terrorist will come again and steal this from me, I thought as my fingers tapped against the suitcase. But this time, I must make sure he doesn't leave here with the hidden rules. The elevator game will live on, but the hidden rules must never be found. I was wrong to think they revealed the truth. No, they only make you a part of this sick and twisted nightmare. Thank you all for listening to this week's episode. I hope that you enjoyed it. Wherever you may be in the world, I hope that you stay safe and sound. And as always, stay creepy.